if you have a worship folder, in it is, it's actually, again, it's not an outline, because we're covering a lot of ground in this series, so there's a lot of verses here for us to look at. But we're in this series on what's the big deal about church, because I know there's been a lot of people ask that. People ask me that question. What's the big deal? So we're talking about what the big deal is about church. And we started at the very beginning and how 2,000 years ago, eyewitnesses, people who saw the resurrection, they saw Jesus poured into the streets of Jerusalem. They had this crazy message that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it changed their lives and they wanted to share this message. And in in less than a month, over 5,000 people had embraced this notion, and the city was in an uproar. What happened was this fragile balance of power between the the leaders of the temple and Rome, this fragile balance was disturbed. Um, And when that happened, there was resistance to this movement because everybody, they didn't, the, the leadership didn't want that happening. So you remember we talked about that and then the disciples were arrested. Uh, they were flogged, which was a, a, a horrible thing. They were warned then not to, to speak anymore about it. But of course, they went out immediately and started speaking out it again because they could not not talk about it. It says that uh, we talked about uh, then that Stephen was martyred, the first one that was martyred because of his faith, and that kicked off a full-scale persecution. And the followers of Jesus scattered because of this persecution, and they took the message with them. This intense persecution raged on for three years. It went on more, but it was intense for three years because the leader of the persecution was relentless. His name was Saul, or Paul, and the leader was converted. We talked about that last week and became a believer and, and spent between 10 and 14 years preparing and letting God work on him. And after about 14 years, he took off and began church planting. And I'm going to just real quick show you the map again. Um, Paul left. If you look at the bottom right corner of the screen, that's Jerusalem. Um, the Mediterranean Sea there. Those cities are cities that ended up having churches in them because Paul did three missionary journeys. He went on three different things. He'd go by ship and then go inland and, and just, just start talking about the message. Start talking about the fact that Jesus came back. Jesus rose from the dead and went and started all these cities. And his goal was to get to, you see over in Italy, up in Rome, over in the top half. So he covered a lot of ground did a lot of different things, planted a lot of different churches. And in AD 67, he was arrested by Nero or executed. He was arrested, but he was executed by Nero. We talked about that last week, but it was like, it's too late. The gospel is out and spreading. And all these, all these cities had churches and, and things, great things were happening way back in Jerusalem is where it all started. Now, interesting The gospel was out to all these cities and spreading, and and the story then kind of does one of these things like we talked about last week. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, there was controversy. This was the first, like, big church controversy, and it was a controversy that would surface over and over and over again in the history of the church. And here's what it was. How good does a person have to be in order to be a part of the church? Another way to put it is, who is the church for? That was the first church controversy. And the problem was, Paul is running around and inviting all of these non-Jews, 
in all of these cities he went to to be a part of the church and they came but they didn't act right they hadn't learned all the stuff like the Jews had and all the rules and regulations and he didn't act right and it was disruptive to people and they were saying no this is too easy and so many of the Jews assumed that since Jesus was Jewish and he filled Jewish prophecy to become a Christian, you had to first become Jewish. That was the controversy. That was 2,000 years ago, all right? Here's my guess. If you have had a bad experience with the church, it might very well have been related to this same issue. You see, not necessarily you have to become Jewish. But who is the church for? How good do you have to be to be a part of the church? And maybe you're on the other side of things and you've been Christian for a while. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you wrestle with this too. But you really wrestle with it from the other side. Because after all, the Bible has a moral code that we're accountable to. And the more we learn that, the more we follow him, the easier it is to see when somebody's not following that moral code. So here's what happens. In the church, grace and truth often collide. And in Jesus, we read in the Bible that in Jesus, grace and truth were embodied. In fact, it's not on the screen, but in John, Jesus said, or John said Jesus was full of grace and truth. He didn't like um, balance the two out really well. He was completely full of grace and truth. So the church, any church, if we're not careful, will drift towards what's familiar and what's comfortable and what's, what's manageable. I've seen it over and over and over again. And when I read this story that we're going to look at today, it's such an interesting story because if you're one of those people who still happen to think, you know, the Bible's just made up story, blah, 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 you know, they just made it up to make everything look good, then you've never read this story because nobody would make this up. If they were trying to paint the church in a good light, they wouldn't make this story up. The church is only 20 years old. This is the, it's called the Jerusalem Council. This council was like A.D. 48 to 50. Very early in the life of the church, actually right after Paul's first missionary journey. We're going to pick up the story in Acts 15, and I have kind of a, a, an alert. It's not a spoiler alert. It's, a, it's an awkward alert. I'm just warning you ahead of time. Okay? We're going to pick up this story in Acts 15, and here's what happens, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, one of the towns that Paul started a church in, and were teaching the believers. Here's what they were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, here's where we're getting into the awkward part, okay? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I have to say, I understand it's a little bit awkward. Usually we like to move right over these things really quick. If you're not familiar with this term... <laughs> Ask your parents, I guess, would be a good thing. But if, if, when you read this, this is what they're teaching. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be part of the church. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised, because that's what they had in the law of Moses. And I got to say, that's a pretty high standard. Like, for instance, new members class. 
would be all women and children. <laughs> the guys are like, yeah, you go on in. I'm, I'm good. It's okay, honey. This is like salvation by surgery. You understand this. So you think back, if you're a church person and you think back of situations you've had, I've been in a lot of churches that have been a lot of issues and whatever you thought was ridiculous for your church to have argued over, I've been in churches that argued over a lot of things. Never that. They've argued over carpet. They've argued over color on the walls and what go, and it's like, I gotta say, I am so, so glad to be part of Journey in Our Church where we don't have those kind of arguments and disagreements. But this is 20 years in. The church is having this. And so there's, there, it's a big debate. And verse 2, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. They're going to clash over this, and it, not necessarily in a negative way, but they're going to have a discussion on this because Paul had been teaching that salvation came by faith in Jesus. Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who has risen from the dead, and that's it. That's all that's necessary for salvation. Now, God will work on us and change us as we move along in our faith, but it's not necessary at the beginning. What's necessary at the beginning is to believe the message that Jesus taught. It says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they're going to have this meeting in Jerusalem. And just in case you're wondering, if you're thinking back to that map and you say, well, Antioch was um, like up here and Jerusalem was here. How could they go up to Jerusalem? You don't think map. Think elevation. Antioch's down here in terms of sea level and Jerusalem's up here. So they went up to Jerusalem um, to see the apostles and elders about this question. So all of these early leaders of the church, they're going to meet and talk about this. So the church, verse 3, sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, one of the places that people were scattered to, and a lot of believers, um, a lot of people became believers there, um, they told how the Gentiles had been converted as they're walking through these areas. And this news made all the believers very glad. They're hearing about all these people who had no Jewish background. They're getting saved, and think great things are happening. And verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. Remember, the church, not the big building. The church is the ecclesia, the gathering, the, the assembly that was called out to, to be different. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So they're now going to sit, Paul and Barnabas and these other believers are going to sit and say, we want to share with you what God is doing in all these Gentile places, in all these non-Jewish places. And it says, after they had reported all this stuff, then some of the believers, they're Christians, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there were 613 laws that they, the Pharisees had to keep, along with a longer list of customs. These are things you have to do in order to be accepted. And this group of believers basically stood up and they said they have to not only be circumcised, they have to keep all 613 laws and the customs. They, they weren't taught that. They weren't raised in that. And I think, how long would it even take to learn all of that, let alone to keep it 
It would require a complete lifestyle change, and they would die before they ever got a chance to become a Christian. All the changes in, in, in lifestyle, in diet, in dress, all of these incredible laws. And so you have this one group that says it's salvation by grace through faith. You have this other one saying, no, they have to do all these Jewish things. And it says, after much discussion, and I imagine it was quite the discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Peter says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Peter's saying that the fact that the Gentiles are believing, this is a God thing. You know that God, I'm one of the ones that God chose to share this. And then it says this, this is incredible in verse 8. God, who knows the heart. You see, we don't know the heart. They didn't know the heart of the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't know the heart of the Jews. But God does. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Now, I have a question for you. It's very easy as, we, as you become a church person. Um, to think that you know what's going on. I have a question for you. Do you believe that God knows the heart of every person? Do you believe that he alone can judge him or her accordingly? You see, a lot of people would say, well, yes, I believe that. But he's kind of called me to do the judging. <laughs> it's like, no, he hasn't. Paul said, I understand there's a huge difference in the way they act and the things they do because they're different. But do you believe that God is the one who knows the heart and God can judge them accordingly? And he goes on, Peter goes on and says, he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, it's interesting because what he's saying is now they have purified hearts as well as like bad, offensive behavior. And we think, is that even possible? Peter thought so. He thought it was possible for them to get saved and become a part of the church before all that changed in their lives. He says, verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God? And it's interesting because they're not, they have, they're not really talking about God at this point. They're talking about people's behavior. And here's how Peter qualifies this. Why do you test God? By putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. He's saying, you're asking them to do these things you can't even do. And in doing that, you're testing God. Why do you do that? He says, no, verse 11. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Even though the behavior is way different, even though the, the customs and cultures are way different, and what he's saying is, that's the gospel. That's the message of the church. Unmerited favor. It's not, be like me, look like me, act like me, dress like me, go the places I do, and then you can be a part of us. That's not it. It's grace. It's unmerited favor. And so they have some more discussion. And then James, James chimes in and he gives a little speech. And here's what he concluded his speech with, starting in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore. So they're going to, this is kind of their ruling. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
Why are we making it hard? Jesus is the one who did all the work. He says, we're trying to put more stuff on them. And he's saying, instead of 613 different laws. And this is, this is drastic for them in their thinking and in their upbringing and in the way they've been taught for generations. This is huge. Here's the conclusion in verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, all those Gentile churches, telling them to, and here's what we're going to tell them to do, abstain from food polluted by idols. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but that was, that was a big thing back then. They would take food and offer it to idols. And you know what idols do with food? Nothing. They're just idols. And so they would take that food that the idols didn't eat and they would resell it. And some of the believers had an issue with that. Some of them didn't. Some of them said, it's food. It's like, see, I would have had a real problem back then. Because it's good food and it's really cheap, you know. <laughs> and that, that kind of is me, you know. But some people had an issue with that. So he said, here's what we should tell them. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. That's anything, any, any sex. I'm going to say that word a couple times just because it will get your attention. He's talking about sex here, okay. He says, abstain from any sex that the Bible doesn't say, this is good. By the way, you know that, right? The Bible says sex is good. Sex is good in the right context. Outside of that, it does nothing except create problems. And he said, so tell them, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's another kind of one of their custom law kind of things. He says, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And I look at this and I say, this is amazing. There was 613 laws plus all these customs. And he says, here's the thing, three. Let's, let's, let's give him three. And the interesting thing is, two of those, the first and the last one, that's kind of a couple of them that he mentions, those are just for the sake of unity in the church. Those aren't things that were laws for all time that we're supposed to do. Two of those three were just for the sake of unity. And he didn't say, this is right, this is wrong. He said, you know, if you do this, it'll create less problems. Because the issue is not your rights. The issue is, let's get the message out there that people are saved by grace through faith and not worry about all this other stuff. And this is amazing to me. Two of the laws are just about unity. The interesting thing is the other one is about sex. And I, I would love to talk more about this today. We're going to do a whole series on sex sometime. And I have a feeling we'll probably have to put more chairs in here. But we're going to do a series on this sometime. But I don't have time to do this today. But this is huge. This is a big deal. Here's what I know. If our culture in America adopted God's law as it relates to sex for one month, you would not believe the change that we would see in our country. No rape, no abused children, no adultery, no teenage pregnancies, no teenage prostitution, no, no sex slavery, huge decrease in domestic violence. That would all be horrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just if we followed God's law on that one thing. But he says what he's going to do is he's going to say, we're not going to give them all these things that they have to do. Let's just say this. We're going to have these two things, which for the sake of unity, and then the one about sex. That's, that was James's thing. And they agreed. And they sent a delegation then. And it says, uh, verse 30, So they were sent off, went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. 
Verse 31, I love this. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message, especially the guys. <laughs> we're really glad that, never mind. Um, <clears throat> so this issue was addressed, should be taken care of. But this issue would surface over and over and over. And not always with the same things, but the same issue. And so in our generation, 2,000 years later, we have to guard against this, this propensity to drift. Because it's, it's just, it, it will always happen. And here's what the drift is. I'll, I'll, it's, it's not about circumcision. It's not about all that stuff. Here's what the drift is. The drift is toward insiders and away from outsiders. That's the drift. That's what happened there, and that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. As church people become more church people, they're doing the right things, they're making the right choices, the drift brings them inside instead of outside. And that's a drift we have to do everything we can to fight against, just like they did. The Jewish believers were more comfortable around people who lived like they did. And so am I. So are you. And so what we do is we clump together like a five-year-old soccer team. You know, <laughs> you ever seen that? It's like there's this gigantic field and all these kids are right here <laughs> moving like this with the ball. Or you go and you watch um, some of these young kids playing hoops and you got this great big basketball court and they all go whoosh right over here onto the ball. That's what churches do. It's fatal clump disease. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a big deal. It's natural. It's wrong, but it's natural. It's what we do. And once a person is kind of into it for a while, it's very natural to cater to, they wouldn't call it this, but to cater to the paying customer. You know? Got to make so-and-so happy. They don't always say those words out loud. Here's what I've learned in, in 40 years of being in the church, many churches that were not Journey North Church. Insiders are the only people who complain. I have never really gotten a complaint about our service, about our music, about our children's program from somebody who doesn't go here. <laughs> never really gotten a complaint about that. <laughs> See, the church... We forget so quickly the church isn't for church people. The church isn't just for people who know the drill so that we can have our little holy huddle and leave feeling good about it and never really change anything and never really reach the people around us. That's why we've been talking and handing out little wristbands and, and talking about here's what the first church did. They fought this too. And so they prayed for boldness because that wouldn't be the natural drift. When you're drifting, it sounds pleasant, doesn't it? I'm just drifting along. You're very seldom going in the direction you want to go. If you're in a boat, you're probably drifting towards a waterfall. We have to fight against that. We have to pray for boldness because a healthy church a church that's doing what God called it to do is a growing church. 
If, if the church is not growing, it's not healthy. Anything that's healthy grows. I'm not talking about big. Big means nothing. Growth, health means everything. And a healthy church will be attracting people who don't know Jesus. A healthy believer will be attracting people who don't know Jesus. Found people, find people. That's how it works. But the drift will always be towards law and away from grace. As much as we like to think we're better than that, if we're not working at it, that will be the drift. You see, most problems in churches are practical problems, not theological problems. Most problems in church don't have to do with this particular point of theology. It has to do with the way we treat people and the way we treat those people in our sphere of influence and whether or not they would look at us and say, they have something that I would like. There is hope there. So the Jews at that time thought in terms of categories. They placed people in categories and it's like Jews are in, Gentiles are out. And so what did they do? They made policies. Churches gravitate towards categories and policies. The church doesn't have the best history in this. It wasn't very long ago that churches practiced segregation. That was a policy. It was also completely unbiblical. We have churches, uh, I was part of churches who it was a policy that there could not be an interracial couple. And it's like, okay, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it's our policy. How about if we go by what the Bible says? I grew up in, this, in, in my church in the 70s. The big deal in my church in the 70s was divorce couples. Ooh, you know? And it's like all law. The grace was not there. So here's what we need. Are you ready for this? We need fewer policies and more conversations. But here's the thing. You know why most churches won't do this? It's messy. It's really messy. But what we need to remember is God knows the heart. We're not the ones who know the heart. We're not the ones who judge. We just give the message. God knows the heart. God responded to the heart of the Gentiles. And you know what? He responded to the heart of the Gentiles before they changed any of their bad habits. I have a feeling that God did the same thing for you. He did the same thing for me. The drift is always towards preserving rather than advancing. The Jews were trying to protect what were truly God-given traditions and laws. We can't blame them. But in the process, it got in the way of what God was doing. They were serving the created rather than the creator. The created rules rather than holding the relationship high. And here's what happens in churches in general. The more successful we are, the more we have to lose. And what happens in churches and, and all organizations, they become less vision-driven. And they become more preserve-what-we-have-driven. And I look at that and it's like, well, it really doesn't make sense. We take the greatest risk. 
when we have the least chance of being successful. We go for it. And then we get some momentum and success, and we back off and we get scared. This happens every season with the Vikings. (laughs) It's like, can we just play one half? (laughs) Just play one half and then quit. Because so often we'd be winning because we do so well. And then it's like, preserve, preserve. And then all of a sudden everything falls apart. You know how often that happens in the churches? They start to do something. They start to step out. They start to be bold. And God starts to bless. And they get a few things. They get a few buildings. They get a few. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we got to preserve. We got to preserve. And the message stops. What we need to do is remain open handed. If you're part of a, not you, but you as in, in general, if you're part of a tiny dwindling church with a building, and I've been part of those churches in my history, and you're trying to protect that asset, trying to protect that heritage, here's what I know. You are missing an incredible opportunity. I know this from experience. I was part of a church many, many years ago in, in Minneapolis, This church was over 100 years old. It had done incredible things for the kingdom. It was downtown Minneapolis. When I got there as youth pastor, I was there for six or seven years. So I was not in charge. I couldn't do anything about what they did. I could just handle my area of things. There was not one person who went to that church who lived within five miles of the building. They all lived in the suburbs and drove into church and did everything they could to protect that asset. And I kept saying, you realize there's like a whole bunch of people within walking distance of here that are dying, that need Jesus. They're messy. We had neighborhoods full of kids with nothing to do that were always getting in trouble. We were downtown Minneapolis. We had a freaking gym in the church. And once every couple months, they'd open it up and those kids would come in and it would be messy. And I think, you are missing such an incredible opportunity. You understand, they probably liked me a whole lot because of the things I said. (laughs) But it was my heart because I believe it was God's heart. You know what happened to the church? It died. That didn't make me sad. It should have died. A group took over that church. We went from having a few people huddled in this church to this church took it over and started reaching the community. People started getting saved and they started having two services on Sunday. Then they started having three services on Sunday. Then they started having a service on Sunday night. Then they started having a service on Saturday night. And the church was packed And you can go look at it today. It's right across from HCMC. used to be Central Free Church. It's across HCMC parking ramp at Old Central Free Church. It's called Hope Now. There was another church on the same block over here, ginormous Augustana Lutheran Church. They had the same heart as the Old Central and eventually died. And the people in the Old Central who are now doing amazing things for the kingdom are now filling up this building and this building. And people from the community are getting saved and amazing things are happening because it stopped being about preserving what we have. And it started being about, you know what? The gospel's messy. 
Let's just share the way Jesus did. Let's remain open-handed. Because in all of those little churches, there are church planters who would come in and they would put that church on the map in that community. But the only way to have that happen is you have to stop protecting and you have to decide this is about advancing the cause of Christ. There are millions of dollars in real estate. Billions. Controlled by people, church people, whose vision is survive. That is pitiful. God has not called us to preserve anything. This is about impacting and reaching a generation of people. The next generation who needs Jesus, who will have a different set of leaders. So here's the bottom line. If we want to do God's thing, God's way, we have to swim against the current. We can't drift. We can't just let things go. We can't preserve what we have. We have to realize that it's going to be messy because people need Jesus. We have to work hard not to be a church where grace and truth conflict, but where grace and truth coexist. Is there truth in God's word about our behaviors and the things that we do? Absolutely. And every time you go against those, you will lose because they're God's rules. But we have to balance that with there is grace because God offered us grace. And we have to be the balance of that. So here's what I think we as a church need to do. Here's what I think you need to do. We need to make some commitments. Because when you make your commitments, your commitments make you. And you have to decide those things. So here's three commitments that I think we as a church need to make. The first one is let's be more concerned with who we are reaching rather than who we are keeping. Do I want anybody to leave? No, don't leave. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was just too good a timing, Jay. <laughs> I heard somebody one time at a conference talking about this, and he said, you know, so many churches are so concerned with closing the back door because so many people visit, but they go out the back door and we don't see them again. And he said, I've never understood why churches are so concerned with closing the back door. Because if you look in scripture, the, the, the biggest analogy for, for church is the body. And if the church is a body, what's the back door? Do we really want to close the back door? <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. So here's what we need to do. We need to be more concerned with who we are reaching rather than who we are keeping. And the second commitment, let's always err on the side of grace. And I say that because almost every person on the planet, given the opportunity, will drift toward the side of law instead of grace. So let's make the commitment to always err on the side of grace. And the third commitment is let's remain open-handed. Because everything we have, we've been given by God. And we've been given not to keep it and preserve it, We've been given it to reach people for the kingdom. See, James was right when he said we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. One of the things I've always said when they say, how do you describe Journey in Our Church? How would, what would you like to, to be said about Journey in Our Church? You know what one of my favorite things is? I want this to be a hard place to go to hell from. And too many churches, you walk in and it's like, if you're not one of them, you're out. 
That's not church. So by his grace, when people are here who don't know Jesus yet, when we act like we're supposed to, maybe they will experience the grace and the truth of our Savior. And it will change their lives. It can change generations of lives. It can change our community. But we have to fight against the drift. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. I know, Father, that this is a a big thing for us. It's very easy for us to to drift the wrong way. It's very easy for us to go the the easy direction and and shift toward that, that law side of things. And we understand how important it is to do the right things. We understand how important it is to learn and use the instruction manual you've given us, your word, and, and make the right choices and do the right things because that's, that's best for us because you put that there because you love us. But we also know how easy it is for us to put those things on other people who don't know you yet. And my prayer, Father, is anybody who's, who's listening to this right now would realize that the message of the Bible is you can have the freedom that you're looking for. You can have the peace that you're looking for. You can have the forgiveness from your past. You can have meaning and purpose in living today. And you can have an incredible living hope for the future by realizing that Jesus loved you. He died for you. He was buried. He rose again. A whole bunch of people saw him. And he's offering to you life by saying, Jesus, I recognize that what you did on the cross was for me. You paid for my sin on the cross. As I I sit in my sin and my ick, you loved me. And I believe that you did that for me and I place my trust in you. And by doing that, we are simply saved by grace through faith. Then you can begin working on us. You can begin showing us those areas, but those aren't the areas that we clean up first. We just come to you. Help those, Father, who have already made that decision to be able to remain open-handed, to be able to commit to not drifting that direction, but to realize, yes, it's messy, but we're here to reach people for Jesus. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song.
another great song that you haven't yet heard on the radio because she wrote it. I love it. Here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus, am I on? It must be. Most of you are saying, no. <laughs> I met my mic. Um, if you don't know Jesus, there's not a whole bunch of things that you need to do to get cleaned up before you come to him. You can't do that. You come to him just as you are and say, Jesus, I understand this is a mess. I'm coming to you and I believe that what you did was for me. And he will change you from the inside out. If you make that decision to follow him, please let us know. Put it on one of these communication cards by the the joy box in the back. Um, Share that with us. If you need a Bible, we have a Bible for you. We want to help in any way that we can because we're, we're in this together. We are the assembly, the called out assembly on a mission for Jesus. And we want you to be a part of that. So remember all those announcements I said at the beginning. I'm not saying those all again. If you're part, if you want to be or just interested in knowing more about that child dedication thing, there'll be a meeting in probably 10-ish minutes in one of the rooms back there. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for this amazing thing that is the church. It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a, a, a set of rules and rituals. It's this group that has been called out for the last 2,000 years out of all of the stuff from before into this new kingdom. Help us, Father, to, to do everything we can not to drift back, not to drift in the wrong direction, but to advance the kingdom by reaching people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for loving us, for demonstrating that, and we love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray.